0: in and across Chicago and over the internet you can make a generous recurring gift by going to our website urbanvillagechurch.org/give and thanks for helping us with your ears, actions and dollars to build up God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven and now here's the latest sermon and our reading today is from the uh, from Matthew chapter 25 14 through 30, the parable of the talents. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, for each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours." But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest, so one with the ten talents. For all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of God for the people of God.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. For those of you that are following along in the bulletin, I am not Aaron James Brown. Sorry if that's disappointing. Um, My name is Katie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I have the privilege of being part of the clergy team at Urban Village Church. I am a deacon in the United Methodist Church. If you have questions about what that means, I would love to talk with you more. But I have the privilege of bringing a good word this morning. Um, This is my first time preaching at Edgewater. So I'm very excited, but also very nervous. So as we get started, would you pray with me? God, we are grateful for your presence in this place and in us. We pray that as we listen to your word this morning, either through me or in spite of me, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to the good word that you have for us today. We ask this in your Son and our Savior Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the reasons that I love preaching when I get the chance is that it gives me the opportunity to really dig in and study a particular passage of scripture um, in a way that I don't normally have the time or don't normally make the time, if I'm honest, um, to really study a passage for a whole week I get to read and reread a text, study what other people have said about it, journal about it, pray over it, read it again, wrestle with it some more, and then try to write a sermon. Inevitably, every time I do this, every time I dig in and study a piece of scripture, I'll notice something in the text, a new detail, a word, or a phrase that I haven't noticed before. And sometimes this can dramatically change the entire meaning of a passage for me. Even with texts that I've heard over and over before throughout my whole life as someone who was raised in the church, the Holy Spirit still manages to show up and surprise me every once in a while. Surprising me and teaching me in new ways. And that's why I love that we have immersed ourselves in this passage from Matthew 25 for the last few weeks throughout this sermon series. I hope that it's been a helpful exercise for you. uh, As we've revisited this same text week after week, perhaps you have noticed something different each week. Maybe you've heard something new. Maybe you've discovered a new treasure in the passage each time. For those of you who have not been here the last couple weeks, we've been talking about money and how we can be better stewards of the resources that God has given us, not only our money, but also our time and our gifts. And we've been guided throughout our series by three principles given to us by John Wesley, the guy who founded the Methodist movement. John Wesley said that when it came to money and finances, there were three plain rules, which are anything but plain once you actually start trying to live them out. But he said that these three guiding principles were earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Now, we skipped ahead a little bit and talked about giving last week because it was the Sunday before Thanksgiving, but the order, I think, is actually super important. We earn all we can so that we can save all we can, so that we can give all we can. For Wesley, not only was it important that we did these three things, how we did them was important. Our motives and our intentions and the consequences of how we went about doing those things, those were important too. For example, Wesley said that if we earned our money in a way that harmed ourselves or others, it would be better for our souls if we had never earned the money at all. Or if we save our money only to hoard it for ourselves or to spend it later on frivolous, unimportant things, it would be better if we had never had the money in the first place. Now, it's important to know a little bit about the time in which Wesley was developing and first preaching these principles about money. When the Methodist movement first began, first in England and then later in America, most of the early Methodists were poor and working class folks. In fact, one of the major reasons that John Wesley's teaching and preaching took the world by storm is that Wesley was intentional about going out and preaching to the poor where they were, although this made him really uncomfortable at first. He knew that poor and working-class folks might not show up to church on Sunday mornings. Perhaps they had a seven-day work week. Or perhaps they knew that folks would have looked at them a little funny or made them feel unwelcome if they had walked in the doors of the church. And so he and a few of his friends went out and preached in fields or outside the coal mines and in the town squares so that everyone could hear the good news of Jesus Christ. But just a few decades later, many of these early Methodists had become quite financially well off. And Wesley noticed that this positive change in their financial and their economic situation was having a corresponding negative effect on their spiritual lives, on their faithfulness to God, and on their commitment to caring for the poor that they had had at first, Wesley could see very clearly the desires and the temptation to sin that wealth can often create in our hearts and in our lives if it goes unchecked. And so Wesley preached about money all the time. And that's actually, if you think about it, not so different from another preacher in a very different time and in a very different place, whose teaching also took the world by storm. Jesus said to his disciples, it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. To each according to his ability. I had never noticed that last little bit in the passage before. Think about it. The master doesn't think that this slave is capable of handling anything more than one talent. He doesn't expect very much from this slave, so he barely gives him anything. But yet, when the master returns and learns that the slave has carefully guarded his one talent, has saved it and kept it safe, the master's reply is, you wicked and lazy slave. I couldn't help but thinking as I read this passage with new eyes and words I had never noticed before, isn't this precisely what we do to the poor in our current economic system? We give them barely anything, believing that they're not capable of managing even the little that we do give them. We dictate what they can and can't buy through SNAP or which neighborhoods they can live in through housing assistance. And yet, when they find themselves unable to get a leg up, unable to multiply their talents, unable to climb out of the grasp of poverty, don't we sometimes call them wicked and lazy? And that began to grieve my heart. Now notice why this slave, the slave with the one talent, didn't go out and trade his money and multiply it like the slaves with two or five talents did. He says, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. I think perhaps the slave has been paying very close attention to his master. He wonders that perhaps his master has acquired his wealth through less than ethical means. The other two slaves, they have been very good students of their master. They followed his same approach, they've played by his same rules, but the slave with the one talent refuses to give in. He seems to understand that it is better to save what little one has in a way that honors God than to gain in ways that are unjust. And that truth I think is central to Wesley's admonition to us to save all that we can. It's not so much about saving as much as you can but in saving as rightly as you can. You See, the way that I've always heard this passage preached and a sentiment that I heard echoed in lots of the commentaries I read as I was studying this week, is a critique of the slave with one talent for playing it safe, for not being a risk taker. Don't be like the slave with the one talent, they play it safe, come on, be creative, the script often reads. But what if, perhaps just for today, We read this passage not as a critique of the slave with one talent, but a critique of a system in which some become rich without earning it or earning it immorally, while others remain perennially poor. It's the master, after all, if you read the text closely, it's not Jesus. It's the master who summarizes the lesson in this parable. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. The thing about Scripture, too, that's important for us to remember is that the Bible is a story. The parts all weave intricately and beautifully together to form one narrative. The church, and I mean that to include churches everywhere along the theological spectrum, the church is notoriously awful for imagining that we can take one verse or one passage of scripture and somehow know what the whole story is about, as if the part can be divorced from the whole. Imagine claiming that you knew what Anna Karenina was about after reading one paragraph from chapter 17. And yet somehow, sometimes that's what we do with scripture, isn't it? So it's important for us, as people who want to learn what it means to follow Jesus, to be students of the whole story. One one, uh, practice that I find particularly helpful is to read the stories that bookend whatever passage you're studying, because they give you clues to to the bigger picture that the author is trying to tell. So the parable of the talents, our text in Matthew 25, is sandwiched in between two other stories that are also about saving and giving rightly in ways that honor God. The story immediately after our text for today is one that might be familiar to some of you. It's sometimes called the judgment of the nations or the parable of the sheep and the goats. There will be those, the text says, that say, oh, Lord, we had plenty saved up to give. We were just waiting for the right time. We were just waiting for you, Jesus. That's why we didn't give our food or our drink to the hungry. That's why we didn't give of our time to visit those in prison. Of course, we had given if we had known it was you. But it will be those who gave freely to everyone, those who saw in each person they met the face of Christ, Will be rewarded by God in the end. The parable before ours is a little bit less familiar of a story. It's called the Parable of the Ten Bridesmaids. And it goes something like this There were ten bridesmaids, five of them foolish and five of them wise. They took their oil lamps and they went out to meet the bridegroom. But the bridegroom was running a little bit late. So by the time he arrives, their lamps have run out of oil. The five wise bridesmaids, they thought to bring their spare oil that they had saved with them. But the five foolish bridesmaids, they leave their spare oil at home. And so when when the bridegroom comes, they have to run home to get their oil that they had saved, and as a result, they miss out on the wedding banquet. This sequence of three parables teaches us that when it comes to earning and saving and giving, our timing matters. So how are we using the time and the resources that God has given us? Are we using our time and our resources purposefully, living into the abundant life that Jesus offers and invites us into? Or are we letting our time pass us by, wasting it away with frivolous and unimportant things? One of the ways that we here at Urban Village seek to save all that we can is the time study that we recently did that some of you may know about. We paid close attention to how much, our time, our, how much time our staff spend in different areas so that we can staff our church smartly and faithfully, so that we can use our resources in a way that honors God and maximizes our ability to live out our mission. When it comes to some advice for our personal and our family finances about saving all we can, Dave Ramsey, who some of you might be familiar with, Dave Ramsey also talks about saving purposefully. He says that timing matters. We don't wanna be caught unawares like our foolish bridesmaids when something unexpected occurs. So he suggests that before you do anything else, you save $1,000 and you put it aside for when, not if, but when, an emergency or a crisis arises. Then he says pay off all your debt and once your debt is paid off save three to six months worth of expenses so that you'll be ready if anything unexpected like unemployment might happen. The other tip that he gives that that for saving that I think is really great and that I think John Wesley would agree with is to save for the things that you want and pay for them in cash. Rather than giving in to this constant temptation of commercialism and buying things, telling ourselves we'll just pay it off on the credit card later, Black Friday, anybody, Ramsey suggests waiting until you have the cash on hand to buy the things that you want. Not the things that you need, but the things that you want. And I can tell you from personal experience that when I have practiced this principle in my own life, in the time it took me to save up for the thing that I wanted, I realized I didn't want the thing so badly after all. But that instant gratification is so real, isn't it? It's always tugging at us, and we have to learn to beat it. We have to learn to master it, rather than letting it be our master. You see, the challenge of saving all that we can, of saving rightly, is to focus on the things that truly matter, not the superficial things. And the challenge to save all we can and save rightly is a challenge to speak out on behalf of those who are vulnerable, and to think creatively about how we use the resources God has given us to build up the beloved community, not build up our own treasure chests. Because consumption is an idol. It is a false god that destroys people and communities and our planet. And so yes, we must be creative, we must take some risks, but our risk-taking has to lead to justice and healing and reconciliation, our creativity and our risk-taking can't lead us to carelessness and to greed. I wanna share with you a couple of John Wesley's own practices and experiences from his life for saving all that he could, because I think that they can actually be really instructional to us even today. Early on in his career, when he was a fellow at Oxford College, Wesley began living out this principle of saving all that he could, so that he could give it to the poor. His salary, the first year that he tried this, was 30 pounds. And he learned that he could live off of 28, and so he gave the other 2 pounds to the poor. And I love that this is where Wesley starts out because we often believe that our offering or our pledge has to be some extravagant amount in order for it to be important and in order for it to make a difference. But it's not so much the dollar amount, it's our intention in giving that makes a difference and that honors God. So the next year, Wesley's salary doubled. But rather than increasing his standard of living to match his increase in income, Wesley again lived on only 28 pounds and gave the rest to the poor. Many years later, in one particular year, Wesley's salary was 1,400 pounds. And Wesley lived on 28 and gave the rest to the poor. In 1776, the commissioners who inspected John Wesley's tax return thought that he surely must be lying about how little he had purchased for someone of his stature. Surely, they accused, he must have bought some really expensive things on the sly and not paid the excise tax on it. Wesley wrote back and replied to their accusation, I have two silver spoons at London and two at Bristol. This is all I have at present and i shall not buy any more while so many round me still want bread saving and spending all we can while others go without basic necessities wesley believed was antithetical to following the gospel of jesus christ under his leadership, the Methodists in London had established two homes for widows in the city, and this, this group of people were supported financially by offerings, by pledges taken up at band meetings and in Sunday worship, just as the early church did in Acts that we read about. And Wesley lived there with them, sharing the same food at the same table. And for him, this was a foretaste of what it meant to share at God's heavenly banquet, something that we remember and we celebrate every week when we gather together at the communion table. When Wesley died in 1791, the only money that is mentioned in his will was the miscellaneous coins that they found in his pockets and in his dresser drawers. Everything else had been given away. Wesley earned all he could so that he could save all he could so that he could give it all away. So what is money for? That's the question we've been asking over the past few weeks through this sermon series. And I want to borrow from the great Dolly Levi from the musical Hello, Dolly. (laughs) Dolly says, Money, pardon the expression, is like manure. It's not worth a thing unless it's spread around, encouraging young things to grow. As people seeking to follow the teaching and the example of our master, Jesus, our money is not worth a thing unless it's given away, building up the kingdom of God and caring for the lost, the last, and the least, and helping them to grow. Here at Urban Village Church, that's what we're working towards, as a church community and as individuals. And we're not perfect, but we're trying And we're learning as we go, baby step after faithful baby step, remembering that Christ is with us on that journey. Thanks be to God. Amen.